Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Peoples and Things, where we explore human life with technology. I'm Lee Vinsel. alluded to this before in the show. I have this moment forever tattooed in my mind. I was lecturing in my class on the history of the automobile, and I was bemoaning how little had been written about African Americans and cars. I popped open a digital database of African American newspapers and started plugging in automotive terms, automobile, car, auto car, etc., and just oodles and oodles of hits came up. Even worse, as I'd been talking about for years in my classes, including my introduction to technology studies called Peoples and Things, Martin Luther King and other civil rights leaders emphasized how personal automobiles and carpooling were crucial to the success of Birmingham and other bus boycotts. Moreover, the history of African Americans and cars was important to many contemporary concerns, including most recently the criticisms of policing that have come out of the Black Lives Matter movement. Just think of how many altercations between police and black people sadly begin with traffic stops. The history was just there for the writing. It was obvious and doable. The topic was important historically and today, and yet it had not been done. Mercifully, this has changed as we've discussed in previous episodes. But the first book I found on the topic, which gave me hope and led me to feel that maybe I had not lost my mind, is the one covered in today's episode. Gretchen Soren's Driving While Black, African-American Travel and the Road to Civil Rights. Soren is director and distinguished professor of the Cooperstown Graduate Program at the State University of New York at Oneida. She and I talk about how Driving While Black came to be, her career as a public historian, and why the history of African-American mobility and automobile use is so important for understanding much larger topics in our culture. I had a wonderful time talking to Gretchen. I am grateful her book exists, and I can't wait to use it in the classroom. Hey, get excited! Gretchen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thanks, Lee. I'm glad to be here. So Driving While Back is a wonderful book, and I I cannot wait to use it in the classroom. When you explain to people what it's about, what do you say? What were you trying to do with it? Um, I was trying to get people to understand the profound effect that automobile travel had on African-American life. There are lots and lots of books that talk about how important the automobile was as, as an invention and how it changed American life. Um, but as I started doing this research, I realized, wow, it really made an enormous impact on African-American life in particular, and it made the, the civil rights movement possible. Without the, without the automobile, you, you couldn't have had the modern freedom struggle. So um, I think it, it's an incredible incredibly important invention 
that promoted civil rights um, in the United States. And I thought that was that that's really what I'd like people to take away. How did, how did you start working on this book? How did you come to do it? Um, I am by training an exhibition curator and historian, and I was working with a colleague on an exhibition. This is very kind of esoteric on an exhibition about the history of Saratoga Springs, New York for African-Americans. And um, she handed me just a cover of the Negro Motorist Green Book. This is about 20 years ago, okay. maybe even more. And she said, have you ever heard of this? And, you know, I'm I'm African-American woman who grew up in New Jersey uh, in the time period of this Negro Motors Green Book. And I had no idea what it was, never heard of it. Um, I asked my mother if she knew anything about it and she didn't know anything about it. And I thought, I have to find out what this is. Mm -hmm. So I started digging into the uh, Negro Motors Green Book. This is long before the Green Book movie, oh, yeah. um, before the popularity, before anybody was even thinking about the Green Book, and I, I wanted to know what it was about. Uh, and that's really how I, I got into it. So if you look at the Green Book, it's like a, a little phone directory, right? It's only names and addresses, and then the later ones have phone numbers. So it's, there's, it doesn't lend itself to, um, I didn't think at the, at the time that it lent itself to deep exploration. Mm -hmm. However, when you, when you really start, start digging into it, you realize this is how people traveled. And most of the travel was done by automobile. And so that's, that's what led me to think about cars and the effect of the automobile on travel for African-Americans. And why, why did this book even exist? Why did this little pamphlet even exist? Mm -hmm. So, um, I, you know, in, one of the things we like to do on the podcast and kind of humanize the research and talk about where people came from, you're someone who works in public history, which seems at least on your, you know, your, your professional webpage to be kind of important to part of your identity as a scholar. And that's a, that's a kind of, a public history, ironically, is something a lot of people in the public don't know what it is. So what is public history and what it, what is that side of your work look at? Um, what, what I do is museum work. Mm -hmm. Um, my career has been spent working in museums. In fact, before I became a university professor, I had worked in museums. Um, I do exhibitions. I do programs. Um, and my, as a public historian, I want to engage people, ordinary people, not historians, with history, mm -hmm. with historical ideas, and to show them how history makes a difference in their daily lives. Um, I think that it's, it's really important for historians to make history accessible. Mm -hmm to people. Um, I know so many history books that we read are inaccessible mm -hmm. because they're written in scholar la a scholar's language. And I really, uh, this book, I wanted to be accessible to anybody. I wanted it to be on people's bedside tables. Um, and I wanted people to really be able to see how this history mattered in their own lives. And that, I think, has been accomplished because people will tell me um, I've, uh, people black and white tell me, oh, I, I really get it. I really understand um, about vacations and why our families did certain things when they went on vacation. Huh. And I really, you know, I really understand why the automobile was important and how it changed our lives. So I think that's great. You no, know, yeah, I agree that's with what you. I, was trying to accomplish. I, I look forward to using it in the undergrad class I teach because I think it's very approachable and, and comprehensible, too. Terrific. Yes. Thanks. So just setting up the story you tell in the book a bit. 
As you point out, a crucial thing for understanding the importance of the automobile to black people is seeing the restrictions on travel they had experienced both under slavery Mm -hmm. and afterwards. So how do you um, kind of help people understand that background reality of limits? Um, You know, as I was working on this book, usually historians write these very narrow stories. Um, And I started out thinking that this story was really going to be kind of just looking at the period from the 1930s when the automobile becomes very popular to the 1960s. Um, And the more I researched it, I realized that it went both back to the period of slavery, to the the very time period that African-Americans arrived in this, um, on the shores of the new world, all the way up to the present. And so um, the story really got got much broader. Mm Um, and it could be defined by one word, and that is um, locomotion or movement. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that? What was it like? What did it mean like to, to be to live in a free society? Wait, let me change. Um, I'm gonna back yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. What does it mean to have mobility in a free society? If you think about it, um, in a free society. Real freedom means you can go wherever you want, when you want, mm-hmm. right? In, in repressive societies, movement is restricted. So for African-Americans, as soon as they arrived in the new world, their movement was restricted. They had to have passes to travel. They had to have, have a, either a paper pass or a, a metal pass if they wanted to go any place. Um, and that movement continued to be restricted. Um, it's restricted during slavery, then during the Jim Crow era, it's restricted by intimidation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you get to the automobile, the automobile gives them incredible freedom of movement. Mm-hmm. It lets you go where you want to go, when you want to go. Um, and it gave them the opportunity to travel across the country. And I think that um, mobility is so important to what, you know, to freedom for all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess part of the picture you present is that you know, we had these earlier technology well technologies that were rising slightly earlier like railroads and then you know there was buses which were merging at the same time as cars but those technologies they they have real limits when it comes to mobility right and they're controlled by others right right so when you get on a train you don't have complete freedom the conductor's telling you what to do the people on the train are telling you what to do the people that sell the tickets or or uh, sell the tickets in, in the ticket office or telling you what to do. Um, the same thing on a bus. The bus driver has the control. You don't have the control. And so the bus driver is telling you, well, you have to sit in the back of the bus. Or you uh, sometimes the bus driver would pull up. You'd go on the in the front if you were African-American. You'd pay your money. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they'd tell you, well, you have to get on in the back. And you go to the back and they just the bus would move away. So you, you didn't have that control. With the automobile, you do have control. Mm-hmm. Um, it, for the for the uh, the bus or for the train, there were separate cars, mm-hmm. separate train cars that were segregated. The Negro cars, um, and this was true even in trolleys and stagecoaches. Um, segregation existed in all of these forms of public conveyance, mm-hmm. um, and it's not until you get to the automobile that people really realize that they have the freedom mm-hmm. to do what they want because they're in their own vehicle. Mm-hmm. And they are controlling it. It's private. Um, they also didn't have to put up with the epithets that were hurled at them um, when they went on some of these public conveyances. Yeah. Now, it's not that the automobile was um, 
completely free of problems for African-Americans um, because you didn't know if you'd be welcome when you were driving through a community, driving through a town. You didn't know what the response would be to seeing black people driving into a particular town mm -hmm. um, or driving up to a gas station. You didn't know what the response would be um, when you tried to purchase gas or when you tried to purchase a meal at a restaurant. But you still had the freedom of movement mm -hmm. to drive your own car. So early cars were extremely expensive. The first Model T that came out was like 2.5 times the average annual wage, I think. And I think it's also safe to assume that most black families were sadly making considerably less than the average mm -hmm. wage. So what do we know about early African-American automobile owners? Like, how do we see, you know, cars come into black communities? Well, well, obviously, people who had moved into the black middle class could afford an automobile. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the people in town who were they owned the insurance companies and the funeral homes and the um, often the pastors could could have a car. But what we, we see and I have to give a shout out to Henry Ford because Henry Ford, he's a raging anti-Semite. Right. He's he's terrible when it comes to his views about American Jews, but he hires African-Americans to work in his factories. And he facilitates the middle class in many ways because he's paying a living wage to these African-Americans. Now they're working in the most dangerous and the most nasty jobs yeah. in the automobile industry, but still they're making a, a living wage and he's facilitating their movement into the middle class and he's facilitating their ability to buy a Model T. Mm -hmm. So I have to give him a lot of credit for helping African-Americans to be able to buy these cars. Mm -hmm. But when you couldn't buy a new car, you could buy a used car or a used truck. Yeah. And that's what people did. Sometimes they shared vehicles among families. Yeah. But they worked really hard to be able to get that vehicle. Yeah, totally. Um, at one point you mentioned that uh, black people preferred roomier vehicles and that this was a preference <laughs> that took hold really early. I thought this was interesting, actually, because, I mean, in some ways it's like a stereotype later, right? But you were saying, actually, we see this in the historical record pretty early on. So, you know, what do you, yeah, what did you find and what do you think that's all about? Well, well, I really wanted to break that stereotype that black people bought cars that were beyond their means. Uh huh. Um, the whole idea of buying a big car, if you think about it, you're going out on the road, you're a black family, you have no idea if you're going to be able to stop and get something to eat. Yeah. Better carry all that food with you. You have no idea if you're going to be able to stop at a gas station. You might want to carry a couple, a couple of gallons of gasoline. Uh, you have no idea if you're going to be able to sleep for the night in a hotel. Hmm. Um, will they accept you? So you better carry blankets and pillows and have a car that's roomy enough to sleep in. Mm -hmm. And so you needed a lot of stuff. You might carry water for the radiator and you carried all of these other things, plus your suitcases and the things that you would need if you're going on vacation. Mm -hmm. And so African-Americans used, used to buy really big roomy cars and reliable cars because they didn't want to get stuck someplace and be have a, a broken down car in a place that was dangerous mm -hmm. for them. Um, and so a big car, a reliable car was necessary. It was also really important because African-Americans were redlined in their, their um, neighborhoods. Black neighborhoods were redlined, which meant 
you could not necessarily buy a house. You were prevented by the banks and by the realtors from purchasing property. And if you couldn't put your disposable income into a house, you put it in your next largest purchase. And the next largest purchase for most families is the car. Mm -hmm. And so you could afford, I could afford a better car than you could afford because you're putting your disposable income into your mortgage. I can't get a mortgage. So I'm putting my disposable income into my car. Hmm. Automobiles have been a big subject in African-American songwriting. I mean, at least going back to Ike Turner's <laughs> 1951 track, Rocket 88, and, you know, Chuck Berry's Maybelline. So how do you think about the role in, of the car in African-American songwriting in, in your book? Huh, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think it's a, it's a celebration. It's an opportunity for people to... to to sing about how important their automobiles were. And I would say that so many musicians spent a lot of time in their cars. Uh, I was going to bring um, that up, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, you and have some spent... wonderful sections on that whole the musicians <laughs> traveling around in the Chitlin circuit and all that, yeah. Yeah, they were the primary people that, that traveled. Yeah. Uh, musicians and, and ball players, uh, athletes were the people that were really out on the road all the time. Yeah. Um, and their cars often have names and they're very close to their cars. Mm -hmm. You know, they feel very strongly about their cars. And so I think it, it only makes sense that they write about their cars and they write about, um, you know, the car becomes a metaphor for freedom. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, they, they just write these wonderful songs, mm -hmm. um, both, you know, the blues, there are lots of blues songs about cars. Um, as well as, you know, rock and roll songs like uh, yeah. <laughs> Maybelline. <laughs> yeah, and you find you find uh, the automobile in so many fascinating places in African-American culture. So another one is that uh, there's kind of, you write about a few African-American intellectuals, uh, in, including the very famous sociologist W.E.B. Du Bois, who is going through, a, in my field, and sociology is going through another moment of kind of rediscovery and is like a big mm -hmm. deal right now. So I, until I read your book, though, I had no idea that he had, he loved his car so much. So uh, loved it. <laughs> yeah. And loved to drive. Uh -huh. and, and I found so many stories in, in people's biographies and autobiographies about how much they loved, loved to drive. And you can just imagine after spending your your life you know, being insulted on buses and being relegated to, um, you know, Jim Crow trains to be able to get in your own car mm -hmm. and just enjoy the the ride mm -hmm. must have been must have been an incredible experience. Yeah, totally. And you also have this wonderful chapter through the windshield. Um, and you have a number of wonderful, though very sad reflections on how mm. black users experience the Jim Crow landscape of segregation and partition. So what were black drivers seeing through their windshields during their period, this period? Well, I, I think I didn't want to make it as if the car was a panacea for mm -hmm. everything yeah. because it wasn't. It was scary. Mm -hmm. um, and you can imagine when you went out on the road, you saw all of these racist signs and you saw all of these racist, um, you know, images as you traveled. So, you know, as you were traveling in the South, you might see welcome to Klan country. Well, that must have been terrifying. Yep. 
Um, when you went to Green, Greenville, Texas, there was a sign that said Greenville, the, the blackest, uh, the blackest earth, the whitest people, mm -hmm. you know, also a kind of a scary, scary thing. Um, and so everywhere you went, you saw these, these, these racist images. There were lots of, um, fast food chains that had, you know, the coon chicken, the coon chicken Inn, which was a, wow. a fast food chicken place on the West Coast started in Salt Lake City. You had all of these, all of this imagery. And you can imagine if you've got kids, yeah. you know, you're trying to, to give your kids some self-esteem as they grow up. But everywhere they go, they see these racist images of Aunt Jemima's and um, uh, kind of Uncle Ben characters mm -hmm. or caricatures um, all over the landscape. And you also read about uh, policing. So I would, I was, I think it was in my twenties, and I was working at a psychiatric hospital in Chicago. And one of my good friends there was named Terry. He was a black man who grew up in Chicago, and he was the first person who talked to me about DWB. And I remember him saying DWB, and I was like, "What's that, man?" And he said, "It's driving while black," which obviously is this ironic um, kind of, uh, you know, dark humor riff on driving while intoxicated. So you point out that this difference in pleasing and hazard went basically back to the beginning of black people using automobiles. So how did people, black people experience safety and risk on the road differently than white people? Well, you know, I think it, it goes even further back from than the beginning of the automobile, mm -hmm. but goes all the way back to slavery. The earliest police departments in the United States were really started as slave catchers. You know, they were the people that were out there every night trying to locate runaway, um, runaway hmm. slaves and also to locate slaves who were gathering together or even free blacks who were gathering together because they were afraid they might be fomenting insurrection. Yeah. Um, so police, um, there, there's a lot of erroneous information out there about um, African-Americans. So um, they would often think that, for example, if you had a, a kind of rummy car, you must be a drug dealer. Mm -hmm. But then the opposite is also true. If you were a black person, you had a very fancy car, you must be a, a drug dealer. <laughs> so in that situation, <laughs> you, you can't really win, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, and so, you know, the police would use um, excuses mm -hmm. for stopping people. Fancy car, dilapidated car. Mm -hmm. um, but they've also, you know, broken taillight. Um, so using an excuse that may be, um, you know, something that, you know, a, a, something hanging from your rearview mirror, you know, a, a, use an excuse to stop a driver yeah. um, because they want to look for something. They want to look for, they, they suspect that they can find something in the car. Yeah. Um, and this has often led to altercations. I mean, it, it, it just led to one the other day hmm. um, for a driver. So I'm, you know, it, it has continued to the present day yeah. these stereotypes about african americans who are out on the road and often or I, I should say and sometimes many times this has led to a shooting yeah um and sometimes it's led to um a death yeah so driving while black is something that we're still facing in this country um and that police departments are still facing because this, these stereotypes about african americans behind the wheel still exist yep Completely. Um, the other thing, you, you, another interesting th bit about risk on the road and African-American drivers that I had not really thought about before and I thought was really fascinating was the problem of 
finding health care after accidents for black people? As we know, health care is not distributed um, equally um, in the United States, but especially during the, the period of Jim Crow segregation, mm -hmm. hospitals were segregated. There were only about 200 African-American hospitals in the United States um, up until the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And those hospitals, of those hospitals, very few of them had trauma centers. Hmm. So if you were in a car accident and you happened to be near the Howard University Trauma Center, you were in good shape. But if you happened to be near, um, in an area where there was no African-American trauma center and no African-American hospital, you might be taken to one hospital and they would turn you away hmm. because you were African-American. And there are many, many instances of people being turned away from hospitals because they're black and sent to another hospital and sometimes then to another hospital and then to another mm -hmm. hospital. Um, and by that time, um, they, they may have died. Yeah. And there are several instances of people who, who died. There are even um, African-American colleges, HBCUs, that would not allow their athletes to travel wow. because they were afraid that if the bus got in an accident or if something happened to them on the road, they wouldn't be cared for. Wow. And so it was, it was quite dangerous. We do know that Bessie Smith um, in 1923 dies, yeah. the singer, yes, the blues singer, um, dies because she's not taken to a hospital mm. in time. Um, we also know that Charles Drew, the physician who basically came up with blood banking during World War II, hmm. um, that he was, he was taken to a hospital in Virginia, Virginia Alamance Hospital, and they recognized him. They knew who he was because he was famous, and they treated him, and he died anyway. However, the black community did not believe it. Wow. And they didn't believe it because Alamance Hospital had allowed other black people to die wow. um, because they were, quote unquote, Negroes and had not and did not treat them. Wow. Um, they treated Drew because they knew he was famous and they knew they recognized him. The doctors in the emergency room recognized him. And so they did treat him. So, it, you know, it was uh, it was very dangerous mm -hmm. for black families to go out on the road. I think it's incredibly courageous that black people traveled um, in their automobiles when they did. Yeah. Because they were defying um, the, the racism that existed in the country. Mm -hmm. They were defying it and they were saying, we're going to travel. This is our right and we're going to, we're going to travel. The Green Book, which you mentioned earlier, it has become pretty famous over the past few years, much more famous than, it, I mean, there was that movie and there was a lot of attention. Um, but I also feel like, I'm glad that happened. You know, I'm glad the movie exists. And But I also feel like the pop story kind of flattens things sometimes and leaves <laughs> things out. So what do you what do you think, like, you know, the kind of popular version of the Green Book leaves out of the story? And what did you find when you were doing your research that maybe that version doesn't capture? Yeah, <laughs> uh, lots of things. I, I saw the movie, too. And I think it was a great Hallmark movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very happy. <laughs> the problem with it is, uh, I think, two things. One is that um, everybody makes a huge deal about the Green Book. Yeah. There were tons of these guides. Mm -hmm. The Green Book was just one. Um, there was the, the Travel Guide. There was Traveler's Guide. There was the Bronze American. There was Grayson's Guide. 
there were dozens and dozens of guides. And the, the black newspapers and the black magazines had advertisements in the back, you know, in the, in the right. advertisements in there. So there were, there were lots of places that African-Americans could go to find out information about places to stay, places to eat um, as they traveled. The other thing I think that's really important about, the, about knowing about the Green Book is that all of these places were not dumps. I, I, the movie makes them look like they were absolute, just seedy mm-hmm. motels. Yeah. Um, there were really fancy hotels yes. that were a part of the Green Guide. Um, and they were all over the United States, mm-hmm. um, mostly... Um, I would say uh, there were there were lots of them from the East Coast to the Mississippi, um, in the middle of the country where there weren't very many African Americans living. There were relatively few, but then there were lots of them on the West Coast, mm-hmm. and some of the hotels were really really fine hotels. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the movie does not suggest that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a uh, it's a. Uh, um... There's historians know that there are these very well-to-do black communities in some cities like Bronzeville and Chicago and these places. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the hotels are going to be as fancy there as they are in many parts of white America. But this does get lost in our kind of historical vision too often, I think. That's right. I think we stereotype uh, African-Americans as all poor people yeah. um, living in, in ghetto conditions. And that's just not the case. Yeah. Um, and it certainly wasn't the case with these uh, African American resorts, these summer resorts and summer camps yep. and uh, <clears throat> places that African American middle class families went on vacation. Yeah. So I started thinking about African Americans and automobiles first when I was in grad school, and I read uh, Taylor Branch's History of the Civil Rights Movement, Parting mm-hmm. the Water. And in that book, Branch makes made clear that one thing that made the Montgomery bus boycott successful is that there were enough cars around to kind of create this carpooling system as an alternative to bus riding. And then, in fact, Martin Luther King himself makes this point in his memoirs of the bus boycott, uh, Strive Towards Freedom. So how should we understand the, the role of the automobile in the larger civil rights movement? I mean, what do you see as like, what, what is the role of this thing? Well, <clears throat> the Montgomery bus boycott is not the only boycott in the civil rights movement. And all of these boycotts depend on the automobile. Mm-hmm. And not only, you know, it's not only volunteer cars, but they actually purchase cars. King's uh, group purchases a, a fleet of automobiles that they use to drive people to work so they don't have to leave their jobs. So they're picking people up. There are also black cab companies um, because cabs were were segregated and so black cab companies are also picking up people and driving them as well um but there are other aspects i think of the automobile that i discovered uh and hadn't really thought about that i think are are very important and one of them is this whole idea of um wait just lost it ah um this whole idea of the rental car. Mm-hmm. I had not thought about um, when the rental car came into yeah. um, existence. But one of the things that a lot of civil rights workers talk about is getting stuck at the airport because the black cab companies were not allowed to pick people up um, at the airport. So if you were Martin Luther King or 
Ab uh, Ralph Abernathy and you're flying into a city and you get to the airport, the white cab companies won't pick you up and the black cab companies can't pick you up. So how do you get from the airport to your hotel? Mm -hmm. And the way they did that was with rental cars. And this was, this was something new, <clears throat> was the rental car. Mm -hmm. So the rental car becomes really important in the black freedom struggle because it's allowing people to, to get around mm -hmm. when, they, when they are using airplanes to fly into these southern cities. That's really interesting. Um, so your your book comes to arrest in the sixties and seventies as things are shifting, and you know, so for instance, the Green Book stops being published in nineteen sixty six, and obviously the the civil rights movement is leading to a lot of change. And then whatever happens in the sixties or seventies, however we want to tell that story, uh, I don't know how it changes. So, what do you think is the legacy? For, for your story today, including the continuing problems with driving while black that you were mentioning earlier? I think what I'd like people to, to really think about is how do we work together to come up with some police reform? Mm -hmm. um, how, how, does, how do we really make um, automobile travel safer for African-Americans and for all Americans for that matter? Um, there have been some experiments in some states. They're experimenting with not having the police, um, police automobiles, hmm. um, with having um, auto automated ticket giving <laughs> um, so that if you run a red light or you run a stop sign, um, it can be, that can be automated mm -hmm. rather than having you stopped for um, those relatively minor offenses. Mm -hmm. Um, you would just get a ticket in the mail as you do when you pay a toll. Yep. Um, and I would like people to really think about ways of um, kind of making it safer for people to travel. Mm -hmm. So what are you up to now? What's, what's next for you in, in terms of work? I've been doing, um, well, we, we just finished working on uh, a learning module for um, Driving While Black. Oh, I cool. finished the... The documentary film, um, Driving While Black, which is um, with Rick Burns and Steeplechase Films. Um, and right now, at the very at this very minute, I'm working on an essay on, on um, Hazel Scott. <laughs> okay, what's the, the, what, the yeah. pianist? She was a, a, a famous, for a while in the United States, um, the 30s and 40s, a famous pianist huh. who moved to Paris um, becomes an expat and she comes back and not she's not very popular anymore. Hmm. Um, and I'm just writing an essay for a chapter in a book about about Hazel. That's cool. And uh, the movie is it out already? Driving while black. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. You can find it on PBS. Oh, cool. Um, if you if you Google PBS dot org driving while black, um, you can watch it. Yeah, here it is. All right. I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> I'll, go, I'll watch it and show it in my class. I didn't even know about this. Oh, I'd love to know what you think. <laughs> All right. Gretchen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. You can reach us with questions comments and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or by following me on twitter at sts underscore news or on youtube at people's 
things. Our podcast is distributed by the New Books Network, the leading platform for academic podcasts, so that you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Peoples and Things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Joe Fort is the producer for the podcast, and Mandy Lamb is the production assistant. This podcast and other Peoples and Things programming are produced in affiliation with Virginia Tech Publishing and supported by the Center for Humanities and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. For the entire Peoples and Things team, I am Lee Vinsel. And most importantly, I want to thank you for listening. Thanks. Thank you.